with this new collection with Promethea, it's why I see so much of, we're do of what we're doing really with the internet as a whole, but even now with this phase of it that we're in with Web3, it's the idea of stealing the fire from the gods. It's the idea of taking the very thing which gives those in power their power. And you have these moments throughout history where someone can go in and take that tool for themselves. Like fire isn't the original technology. So that's why in the Prometheus myth, it's, it's, it's visualized as fire, but really Prometheus is seen as the father of technology and the, and the origin myth of how technology was given to humans to make it so that our humanity was different from the experience of the animals. That it's, you know, this idea that we look up to the gods. We, we have this spark of divinity in us that is our cleverness and our ability to concoct schemes and build things and create civilization. And so, yeah, with Promethea, it's like, I, it's a, it's has come up for me. It's been in my head now for a while of like everything we're doing with web three, with crypto, with these things I've been, you know, tampering in <laughs> for these few years. Of like <laughs> it's taking the very tools of power itself and reappropriating them and using them in a way that's allowing people who have not been empowered to now have the tools of power. So it's no surprise that the people who have the power are furious about that. Like the gods do not like to have their fire stolen. <laughs> Talking about NFTs and that's nifty. That's nifty. All the great artists they come to this place to talk about the crypto space and that's nifty. That's nifty. That's nifty. Your hopes for tonight's podcast are Tyler. Larry and Slime Sunday. Damn, that's nifty. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? Hey, going well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. I'm Tyler, by the way. Hi. Larry. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you too. Yeah, so we uh, have this little podcast going almost for a year now called That's Nifty and just kind of talk about art and the NFT scene and you're probably the uh, you have the oldest NFT on the blockchain of anyone we've spoken with so far. <laughs> Whoa! Yes. Well, You're an OG. I, I guess I am OG. I'll take that distinction. <laughs> awesome. So you're based out of Hollywood. Uh, yeah, I'm based out of Los Angeles. Nice, nice. Yeah. Loving it out there. Hell yeah! What's not to like? Yeah, I mean, it's still <laughs> daylight for one. I mean, yeah. There's actually there's plenty to not like, but I lo I like it. <laughs> I like it. We were interested because you said that you had a Nifty Gateway drop coming out, I think, this Sunday, right? Uh, it is coming out next Wednesday. Uh, so, yeah, oh. I wanted to ask you guys. I don't know when this will be released, but if it'll be before that, I'm happy. It will. Yeah. Awesome. We were going to do Thursday this week. I think we'll bump it to Monday, our premiere spot, and it'll be uh, right before the drop. I think it'll work out great. Perfect. Well, I'm thrilled to talk about it. Apologies as I'm like fussing with this pop pop filter that's like not behaving. I I like we've had our battles with pop filters too. Yeah. So we've given up. Uh, we throw them out. So fussy. I gave up on it too because uh, you know exactly this reason that it like won't stay 
And I did a podcast recently called, I think it was called Art Sense. And I was like in the car listening to it with my wife. And I was like, well, the pop filter's going back on because <laughs> I sure do love my, my consonants and I'm hearing them like knives in my ear. So the pop filter's coming back. So do you have a show as well? Or is that just your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's just my Twitter handle, though that has frequently confused confused yeah, people. It, I'm yeah. like, where's the show? It yeah, what show? The show. It this is little. the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I came up with that handle when I was like eight and I got one of those like AOL uh, CD-ROMs in the mail. And that was like my very cool, like, you know, AIM screen name. And I've, I mean, why, why, why fix it if it ain't broke, right? Like I've kept yeah. it ever since. So I mean, Twitter is basically adult AIM with right? at this point. So yeah, right. You picked a better name than I did. I think my email was like TK bomb 9,000. And after nine 11, you really can't be <laughs> oh, typing yeah. that email anywhere. I think I had a screen name that was like the bomb.com, like something like that when I was like 10. Yeah. I had a number of them, but the Sarah show stuck around and she's, she's still with me. So so right. Fantastic. The show is it's a it's a feeling more than a more than an actuality. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a state, clearly. I um in regard to the drop on Thursday, what um mm-hmm. I guess you want to dive into themes or or really kind of the premise of what you got coming out? Sure. Are we are we recording? Is this the podcast? We record now? from the jump. We're so <laughs> laid back. This is like, I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Well, hello world. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'd love to get into it. Yeah, it's going to be on Wednesday, January 19th at 6.30 on Nifty Gateway. I have Nifty Gateway all all to my, uh, yes, yes, Eastern time. Uh, I have Nifty Gateway all to myself that day, which is very exciting. Throwback to like last January when they were doing solo drops. Yeah, I know. I feel feel quite honored. Um, And it is, it's almost exactly one year since I did my... Yep. Last release on Nifty Gateway, which was last January, uh, it was a collection called Be Not Afraid that still holds a very special place in my heart. Um, and so, yeah, for my return to Nifty Gateway, this collection is called Promethea. And it is my warped and uh, mischievous retelling of the Promethea Smith. Uh, with this, you know, this character I created, Promethea. And so it's going to be, what I'm excited about is I am actually, for this go around, I am minting all the pieces myself on a manifold contract. Nice. So it's, I'm really happy to be working with Nifty Gateway uh, because I think they have such a great like primary sales mechanism. And I think they have a great secondary sales mechanism too, um, but I really like the changes they've made uh, that I think really jive with my ethos of like platform agnosticism. And I think all the platforms really, um, they do right by us, right? When they make it like, so that it's not like, if you buy this NFT here, it has to stay here. Right. Um, I, I really like seeing the moves that they've made uh, because it's so, it's very creator friendly, right? It's like very um, friendly to my, my collector base, which is obviously on every, all over the place. And, um, you know, it's an issue we've long had, like I've been minting my work since early 2019 and 
we're so lucky that like a group of artists got together and made, made artist royalties a thing. They've been trying to do that in like traditional art for like a hundred years, if not more. <laughs> and we just, you know, there was never a way to make it enforceable. Right. And so now we have this standard of artist royalties, but we still fight this problem of like, if, if I meant to work on super rare and then it, someone's a collector of mine sells it on OpenSea, I don't get my royalty. Right. right. And I think a lot of people just don't even don't realize that that's the case because that's like dumb. It's very fuzzy too. Yeah. And like yeah. I've come across it where I'm like, oh, like we had a thought like selling our friend Slime Sunday's <clears throat> piece. Like if we did it on OpenSea or off platform, we would end up having, we would send him royalties. You know what I mean? On the side. Yeah. Just because we yeah. Know we'd be and and that's out. what you should do. And that's what I, I have done that. I, you know, it's like you as a collector, I believe you have every right to sell the work in whatever way, shape or form you find is desirable to you. That's the whole point of what we're all doing here. I'm, uh, you know, we're all people who are kind of saying, you know what, fuck this bureaucracy that our lives are like completely enmeshed with in our day-to-day life. Like that there, anyone who's ever had to engage with their bank for any reason, <laughs> shape or form. And then you're like, what do you mean? There are all these weird rules about my my money what do you mean i can't do this with it i can't do that with it i have to wait this long so it's that like that's the exciting thing of what we're doing here but yeah it's all to say that like yeah i believe uh, it's not just belief it's like very much part of this ethos that there are underlying contracts to nfts this idea of a smart contract is a contract you're entering into and so for the time being until things become a little less obtuse yeah, if you want to buy something on Super Rare, say, and sell it on OpenSea, or buy something on Nifty Gateway and sell it on OpenSea, by all means do. Uh, but it's the honorable thing to do to honor the contract and send that royalty manually to the artist. Um, not just honorable, I mean, it's actionable. The artist could could take action against you if you don't, and that's ugly. Um, so I think we're all best served if we just sort of like honor the contracts we enter into. But I have completely gotten off topic. It's all to say, I'm sure we'll I, circle back as I want to do, um, yeah. <laughs> as I very much want to do. But it's to say this this collection I'm I'm releasing on Nifty Gateway. I'm really excited that I can offer up you know these excellent ERC seven twenty one editions of my work yep. minted by me on a contract I own that I am going to integrate with OpenSea. So you know my collectors can buy them on Nifty Gateway. If they want to, at some point, resell them on Nifty Gateway, they can do that. If they want to take them out of Nifty Gateway and put them in their wallets and have, you know, have custody of their own NFTs, they can do that. And then they will integrate seamlessly with OpenSea. Like, it's exciting for me because I feel like um, this is this is a very like cross-platform friendly way that I'm doing things, and I'm just excited having seen the evol- uh, evolution of this space. I'm really excited to be able to do it in this way. And I'm, I'm really stoked that Nifty Gateway has been so supportive of that. So yeah, the collection itself, the art is in my signature video painting style, which is this style I've kind of uh, developed over the years where I work with this, like this vintage video painter. That's this device that like truly as a kid, I would like see it on TV. I'd see commercials for like a version of this. I use like a professional grade version, but I'm sure anyone who was like a kid in the early nineties, they were always trying to sell these to us, these like video painter devices. You could hook them up to your TV. 
And it was like a stylus and a tablet and you could draw things on your TV. It's like Mario paint too. It's kind of yeah. like a similar idea. Um, and so I've just had, I finally, as an adult, got my hands on one of these, this thing I like asked for, I think every Hanukkah and I never got one <laughs> for me. Um, you know, and I finally was like, you know what, I got this and have found that it's like specific format and specific, almost like limitations that it's, you know, it's, it's eight bit it's, it's lo-fi. Um, but it, it, it really agrees with my drawing and my style of like expressing myself. And then I, I bring in like original animation I create, and then I process it all through this analog rig that I've built out over the years of all this like vintage video hardware. Uh, I have some custom built like glitch devices I use and mixers and it all ends up on videotape. I have this, you know, catalog of videotapes uh, that I keep under lock and key. <laughs> it's like my life's work. Um, but, you know, I always say that like my work isn't, the point is not that it's nostalgic. The point is not just like, oh, cool, retro. Like, obviously that's an aspect, that's a feature. But to me specifically, the work I do is really about like this sort of like unholy merging of modern tech and obsolete tech. And I think a lot of that is about just even like exploring what it is to like be a millennial, what it is to be, I like, I call us the spirit bridge generation. We're like the last people who remember what life was like before the internet. But we also like, like I was saying, I got the internet so young. I also consider myself like digitally native. So it's kind of this gift of being like bilingual almost. Um, but we're going to, you know, as time goes on, we're going to be the bearers of like, we get to decide which of the old ways we keep with us, you know, as things are going to become radically different in our lifetimes and have been radically different in every passing year of our lifetimes. Like, I think maybe no other generation we know of has been asked to change so much within the, within the scope of their own lifetime. And so the style I work with, I think really... I think that's my, that's why I like working with it. And I would go out on a limb to say, I think that's why it resonates with people is it's like a Trojan horse. It grabs them at first. Cause they go, Whoa, this, I get, this is like VHS it's retro. Like it looks like old Nintendo or something. And, but then when they sit with it a little more, it's like, but this also isn't what things looked like back then. <laughs> Some, something else is happening here. Something psychedelic and, and, um, you know, a lot of the work I do, I, it's, it is very psychedelic. It is, there's an almost spiritual aspect to a lot of my work. So, yeah, I'm just really excited to open up uh, this, my, my bag of tricks and like invite everyone for this collection specifically, because I, I think it's like some of my most potent work ever. And it's going to be three limited editions. It's a, the, the series is essentially a triptych. It's three video paintings that tell the story each one in an edition of 10 and it'll be sold through a ranked auction. Nice. And then a title card. I really like for these series I do, uh, I like doing a title card that kind of sets the tone for the, for the series, but then the title card will be an open edition and it'll be priced, you know, approachably because uh, you know, as the space has taken off and as I've been very fortunate that there's been a lot of interest in my work, um, but it's also always really important to me that I have something I can offer to people who want to support, who want to collect, um, but, but obviously feel very priced out out of a lot of my work. And 
you know, it can lead to flipping too. So you kind of make, you kind of make peace with that, but, um, that's my thinking and wanting to, to offer this open edition. And yeah, anyone who's like familiar with my work, I did a, I did a series that was, that's, that's sort of like the predecessor to this. That was called the Cassandra complex back last spring, back in April. And it, it followed a very similar format and the Cassandra complex, like it's based on the myth of Cassandra, right. Who was this uh, prophet in ancient Greece. She was like, she was given the gift of the ability to see the future by Apollo but basically she like wouldn't put out for him. So he was <laughs> mad. So he said, well, now I'm going to make it so that like you can see the future, but no one will ever believe you. So it was like, surprise, this gift is actually a curse. Um, That's perfect that, for the art that, that you're making, right? Wow. Right. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. It's some meta shit. Yeah. And like, not just my art, but like, I don't, you know, I like for my work, to be a little ambiguous and to have layers to it and to be open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be too prescriptive about it, but the Cassandra complex definitely, you know, the Cassandra complex has now become this term in psychology, you know, that came about in the 20th century, referencing this figure, this, this woman from ancient Greece who kept saying, here's what's going to happen. The Trojan war is going to happen. And everyone was like, no girl, shut up. You're crazy. What are you talking about? You know? And so my telling of the Cassandra complex was really me contending with, you know, at that time in April of 2021, I had been doing my, I had been minting my work as NFT editions for two years I had been believing in this technology, excited about this technology, embracing this technology, telling, you know, I'm not an evangelist by any means. I think people need to find their own path to things, but I certainly was like, as best I could sharing it with people. Cause I was like, y'all should check this out. I'm pretty sure this is the future. <laughs> um, and most and they were like, being, whatever. Right. Exactly. Almost entirely being ignored. And then, and then really in my telling of it, it was specifically dealing with you know, I have a background in fine art and contemporary art, and I was really shocked, I guess, to see how angry the art world was about NFTs when they first kind of like, it was the Beeple sale, right? That was the moment. That was the piercing of the veil of like the world could not ignore this anymore. And so that's, this collection arose out of what my experience was after that sort of watershed moment of being really shocked by how vicious people were being, being really shocked by the environmental sort of misinformation that was being used as a, an excuse for people to enact violence, you know, psychic violence against artists. Um, I, I really, <laughs> I'll say I'm not Cassandra. I didn't see any of that coming. I really didn't know people were gonna be so angry. I mean, I, I used to be a photographer and that's why I got, that's how I know to do what I do is when I was a photographer, I additioned my work as prints and I sold prints of my artwork. And what we do now with NFTs, it's exactly that. It's the exact same mechanism just for artwork that is screen-based or virtual in some way, incorporeal, shall we say. And so I was really like, to me, it had always just been that of like, whoa, cool. Now, thanks to cryptography, I have a way to addition my video artwork, because I've been primarily a video art artist for, you know, about the last decade. And yeah, so I just was really dealing with how prophecy, especially when it's true, angers the powers that be and how they'll do everything in their power to shut it down. 
but that's the thing about prophecy. It can't be shut down. Like it's, it's, it's faded in a way, you know, uh, not, not to be mystical about it, but that it's that of like, this is too big for any one human being or any group of human beings to shut down. It's such a transformative societal force. And, and that was kind of the culmination of the Cassandra complex is maybe one of my darkest artworks called turns out she was right. And it's the prophet being burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the queen's head has been cut off and the people are rejoicing because they have like the new ways they have the, the prophecy has come true. And yet they sort of don't know that there was a, there were early people who suffered to make the new way be birthed. And all the people who were clashing, who clash in those early moments tend to kind of be like punished or, or forgotten or done away with. Like the authorities that fight it also fall away. You know, they all, they become, uh, they become toppled by the power of this thing they were trying to stop. And then everyone's kind of going, yay, hooray, we have NFTs now. We love it. But they like, you know what I mean? They just sort of like, yeah. don't, they don't see that there was, you know, the prophets being burnt in the background. They don't see that, that it was like artists. And I think specifically female artists, queer artists, artists of color, like people who were, who were marginalized had to bear the brunt of that backlash. I think the hardest of anyone because they're part of these other communities um, that demand so much accountability. Uh, and so it was kind of like getting it from every side. It was really, it was really intense. And that's just my way, I guess, when I'm, when I'm experiencing something really intense and really challenging is to like transmute it into art and often into like very joyous, psychedelic, um, art, because I think even things that are really dark like that have shades that are funny. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of funny. People are funny. The story of Cassandra, like when you come across that or as you're thinking about the art that you want to create, like, how did you make that connection that you're like, oh my God, this is fucking perfect. Like it must've just came together. Like, I don't know, it feels faded in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how my brain works. I mean, I, I actually have no education in visual arts, um, but I have probably too much education in writing and specifically in screenwriting. Yeah. Like I, I, I went to grad school for screenwriting. So part of that for me then is like just my own brain. I'm a like trivia witch that like, I just like have lots of little nuggets of things in there that pop up for me. Uh, you know, that when I'm experiencing life where I'm like, Oh, this is that, this is, this is why right. myth it's why myth is so enduring. I mean, the story of Cassandra is thousands of years old and yet repeatedly throughout history, it's like, Oh, it's this again, right. We're doing this again. And it's why with this new collection with Promethea, it's why I see so much of, we're do- of what we're doing um, really with the internet as a whole, but even now with this phase of it that we're in with Web3, it's the idea of stealing the fire from the gods. It's the idea of taking the aspect of the very thing which gives those in power their power. And you have these moments throughout history where someone can go in and take that tool for themselves. Like fire isn't the original technology. So that's why in the Prometheus myth, it's, it's, it's visualized as fire, but really Prometheus is seen as the father of technology and the, and the origin myth of how technology was given to humans to make it so that our humanity was different from the experience of the animals. 
that it's, you know, this idea that we look up to the gods. We, we have this spark of divinity in us that is our cleverness and our ability to concoct schemes and build things and create civilization. And so, yeah, with Promethea, it's like, I, it's a, it's has come up for me. It's been in my head now for a while of like everything we're doing with web three, with crypto, with these things I've been, you know, tampering in for these few years of like, <laughs> it's taking the very tools of power itself and reappropriating them and using them in a way that's allowing people who have not been empowered to now have the tools of power. So it's no surprise that the people who have the power are furious about that. Like the gods do not like to have their fire stolen. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's telling the story. And as I often do, I, I also like to play, you know, I am a person of female experience. Like I also just like to play with gender. And like, so for me, I wanted to depict Prometheus as female. That was important to me to, if nothing else, just make the point of like my experience in all of this. I've been here since the early days. I am a, an artist who happens to be a woman, you know, and all day, every day I hear, I get tagged on things where people are like, there are no women, there are no women in this. And I'm like, no, we're definitely here. <laughs> um, definitely here. Interesting narrative, interesting narrative that gets echoed. And I do my, I do what I can in my small way to sort of go, let's just change this narrative because it's honestly not true. And yeah, I hope it works. I, I hope it, I hope it works in some way for people. Back in 2019, like what was the catalyst where you were like, oh, NFTs make sense now? Like, I know you were saying like, this is like a, a way to do prints basically of the mm -hmm. video art that you're making, but like, what was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking with a friend of mine about this uh, the other day uh, because, because sometimes, you know, I, I'm, I'm a humble person and I'm aware that I've had great, I've had very good fortune to be in the position I'm in and to have found this all early. And then as I say that, I then also go, well, I also should give myself a little credit that, uh, you know, like, <laughs> there yeah. are only a small amount of people yeah. that, that knew right. and were actually minting at that time. Like, yeah, some of it's luck, but, but some of it's Maybelline. No, um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, um, no, I, yeah, I, it, uh, what I mean by that is that I, I, like I said, I, I really transitioned just organically from being someone who was primarily a photographer. I was known in certain photography circles. Uh, I was very, that was very much my identity, you know, last decade. And then around 2011, I just got more and more interested, fixated on video and, and moving image. And around 2013, that really looked like I was making a lot of GIF art. I was very involved in GIF art. So specifically like short looping artworks um, and really did this sort of unthinkable thing at that time, which was like, you know what, this is what I'm specializing in. I'm going to, I'm going to take this chance and, and just be like, this is what I am now. And I ran a GIF studio called the currency had nothing to do with crypto. Uh, it was the, the current C like it was, uh, ah. and it was, and it was a, it was a, a kind of like an inside joke between me and my, my, uh, collaborator at the time, because it was like, 
a way to create a container for like how we could make money from what we did so that we didn't have to work our shitty jobs anymore <laughs> that we were like let's just make this be our job what if we can what if we do that and like it mostly worked i mean i had to work many other gigs throughout you know running that studio like my main gig was that i read scripts like i was a hollywood script reader i've read more screenplays than is like healthy for a person <laughs> um I have so many of other people's weird ideas in my head now because of that. But um, yeah, so for many years, I, I was like very invested in GIF art. It was, it was just my main sort of like, it was my milieu, you know? And I, I even curated a show in Los Angeles called uh, Prism Pipe for two years that was all like GIF and short form video art paired with live music. Many of the artists I curated in that show are now like movers and shakers in the crypto art scene. And so asked with Kidmograph. Yeah, he was he was a, an artist I showed at Prism Pipe. Um, yeah. And like he also there, it was also Tumblr, right? Like Tumblr was I was a hu hugely active on Tumblr. We had a community on Tumblr of artists. Um, and, you know, like people understand Beeple's idea of every days. I think a lot of us were doing that sort of thing back then. You know, I certainly was doing something where it was like every day I might make something new and Tumblr in its heyday was really exciting because you could get immediate feedback on your work. And it's what I like still about like crypto art um, and, and just this community is that still that sense of like, it's not that I think feedback or likes or comments are what should dictate what you do. It's just to say none of us create in a vacuum, right? As an artist, you sometimes just need that little bit of someone saw your work and that can propel you to create 10 new artworks because you're like, someone saw it. They liked it. Cool. Um, and that's really what Tumblr was back then. And so it's all to say the reason I give all this backstory is that it was around like really it was right around the time Ethereum like came to exist around 2015. There were experiments being done at a, new, uh, a media arts organization called Rhizome in New York. That was the Kevin McCoy um, NFT basically. And it was on a blockchain called monograph, I think, but it was basically like the, the early building blocks. And, and there are others who are working with this. I, I'm not trying to say that he was the only one, um, but he was who I was this, this experiment in particular was what I was aware of in 2015 uh, of like basically the first NFTs, like, and with the advent of Ethereum, I just fell down a rabbit hole reading about the possibility for smart contracts and in 2015, it was all kind of theoretical still. They were like, basically, this has to get up and running. We don't, we don't know yet, you know, what, but, but it could have huge potential application for the additioning of digital art. And mm. that wasn't my thinking. That was like, I was like probably the Rhizome newsletter or something that said something about this. And that was like, like, oh my God, everything I used to do with my photography I could apply that to what is my current practice, which is digital art. Because for a long time, I had to work in the model that I will attribute to the artist writer Rips. He made a great graphic about this that still applies for most artists if they're not involved with NFTs, which is make cool shit, wait for emails, repeat. <laughs> right. Right. It was like always just putting cool shit out, coming up with cool things, making cool things, getting them out there as best you could, and then hoping maybe, you know, Doritos will ask you to make a gift for them. Right. That was my yeah. life. And back then I was like, fuck, I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, like I'm one of the lucky ones 
that Doritos wants me to make a Dorito GIF, you know? And like, and I was, it was like very hard, you know, especially as a digital artist, very hard to make money from your work. And we all know that struggle, right? Of like, if you have a day job, it covers your bases, but then you like don't have much time left over for your art. But if you decide to make art your full-time career, like I always tell people when they ask me, like, should I quit my day job? Should I make art full-time? And I, I say, it really, I really don't know. It really depends on, on what kind of person you are and what you really want from life. Like, I, I would not ever just blithely tell anyone, yeah, quit your day job, like make art, dedicate yourself. It's like, Hey man, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard road. I got to tell you, it's going to be hard. Even now with NFTs, especially people getting into NFTs now it's, it's a saturated market. And I'm always trying to point that out to people of like, enter gingerly, do your research, make friends, be humble and build because just because you see people who come in and have this wild success right off the bat, that doesn't mean that's going to be your story. And it doesn't mean anything about you if that's not your story. It just means there's a lot of competition right now. And, and you got to want to do this. There is never, ever going to be an easy answer, right? And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was at that time that I saw that I was like, whoa, I even, uh, you know, we did an interview with the creators project from vice that was about the future of gifts as gallery art. And I want to say this was like in early 2016, that was the title of this article, the future of gifts as gallery art. I don't think it's on their site anymore. I was looking for it recently and it's, it's like the headlines there, but then none of the text where I'm like, Ooh, she was too prophetic. They like (laughs) couldn't let it live. But I remember ranting to the, I remember like this, having this, this, like, I was just, when I'm excited about something, as I'm sure you guys can tell, (laughs) she can just go. And I was telling this journalist about like, oh, there's this new blockchain called Ethereum. And one day people aren't going to laugh at GIF artists anymore. And they aren't going to say GIFs. Those aren't art. I was like, one day, those of us that are like doing this, and I know because I'm enmeshed in this community that there are people doing incredible artwork in this form. I was like, one day we're going to have this mechanism to edition our GIFs as artwork and then sell them in a, in a provable way. And then forget it. I was like, it's going to change the art world as we know it. And I still think about that where I'm like, damn, that was, that was like three years before I found super rare. Scary. (laughs) Yeah. And the way I found super rare was through one of the artists I curated at prison pipe, the show I used to curate. Uh, It was Yura Marone who does this awesome psychedelic like animation And, um, he, you know, a lot of these artists I curated back in the day, even as Tumblr kind of fell by the wayside, we all still followed each other on various, various social media platforms. And yeah, in early 2019, I saw him posting, Hey, I'm going to, I'm selling this gif of mine on super rare. That's it. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I applied to super rare, got on and I think it was April 4th, 2019, I minted, I actually minted, yes, I have a Genesis token, but things were so different back then. And we had no idea what we were, we were making it up as we go. So I think I minted like five things that first day. Cause I was like, Oh, it's like an online store. I'll just throw all these one of, I'll throw all these things up here. And then I remember someone offered me $38 for my Genesis. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> 
oh my God, $38. And I didn't have to make anything for Doritos. Like, here you go. Like, here you go. Here's my life's work. (laughs) Because it's, it's that it's like, of course, everyone wants to feel supported. Everyone wants to feel like their passion is being um, supported uh, in a way so that they can make their life be about it. But no one chose to be a digital artist because they, as a get rich quick scheme, you know what I mean? But they are now. I was going to say, maybe they are now. And that's been really trippy and sometimes a little dystopian for me. But especially for those of us that got into it at the beginning, it was like, no, this is my calling. I'm called to this. I, 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 this is just what I am. I do this. And now that there's this aspect of it where I could maybe be treated with the same respect and same sort of like level of support that a that a, an artist with gallery representation gets that that will change my life and it has changed my life and now it's just this weird thing of watching the ongoing culture war the ongoing weird thing of like so many people who should be on the same side of things sniping at each other like if you go on twitter and you're like damn i think we all agree yeah. and yet and yet we're also talking to each other like we're going to murder each other. Like, what is going on? Why are, and I think a lot of that's just COVID fatigue. Like, I notice it with myself and I'm a grouchy grouch sometimes about like, everybody sucks. I hope it's I'm like, not like a maybe I just need to go theorist. outside. I feel like I might be like a conspiracy theory nut or something, but I feel like it's all coordinated kind of on Twitter. Mm. Like, it almost feels manufactured in a way where like, like you said, the powers that be like really don't want yeah. this to like latch on, but yeah, I, for me, it's specifically, you know, I, I don't really delve into the collectible side of thing too much. I, I'm happy for people. I think it's great. It's just not my scene. I mostly see like art world people sniping at each other. Uh, and I'm sure it's like that in every community right now. And it's just really, it's been really, it's been really strange for me because I, it's that of like, people have such violent opinions that they are like, that is the hill they will die on. And there is, there's very little for me that is the hill I will die on. There's very little for me where I'm like, it's this, it's definitely this, absolutely this and nothing else. Like maybe I've taken too many psychedelics. I don't know. I just always (laughs) see how it's like in any argument, I'm like a really frustrating person to argue with because I'll be like, you know what? I see how you're also right. I'm (laughs) I'm right, but you're right too. Good for us. (laughs) I love it. I feel that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting the sense that like in hearing you explain like how you kind of evolved through the years, right. To get where you are artistically, Mm -hmm. your style and your work, I feel like has a very identifiable nature to it from your experimentations coming up and just kind of getting a read of like of the, you know, art scene in general, as you, you know, navigate, whether it's physical digital whatever it might be do you find yourself like do you feel validated already do you feel like you still got like stuff to prove and like I, I really do appreciate you breaking down like the the stories that you're trying to tell behind them because the that type of context is like invaluable that can totally get lost on like a you know a, a nifty drop with like three other people where it's just, mm-hmm. you see it come across the screen so from your end do you find i'm pretty cemented here or is there like any imposter syndrome that you kind of still deal with yeah that's a great question i think everyone struggles with imposter syndrome certainly if you're like a sensitive thoughtful person yeah. you like should you you should never get so full of yourself that you don't ask yourself 
what you're doing and what you're doing to sort of like earn your keep. Yeah. Um, so that's all to say that it's like a yes and a no for me. It's like, again, I, I've been an artist, a professional artist for a long time and an artist really for my entire life. It's that I, it's, I often think about this, how I'm really grateful that this moment, this sort of breakthrough for me is happening in my mid thirties and not say my mid twenties, mm. uh, even though Lord knows I was hungry for it in my mid twenties. Um, the gift of being a little older, not that I'm old, but like, yeah. you know, a little, a little older than then maybe some people this is happening for is that I have already been through like cycles of my life cycles of like, I've seen some shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and it, like it, it helps you, it helps you stay even keel. It helps you not set yourself on fire um, when everyone else seems to be setting themselves on fire. And that's why I've stuck around. I've been through some scary market cycles at this point. Uh, in crypto art. And I've seen people dip out when like that big dip, that big, you know, when we lost, <laughs> when the market took its big shit back in May, I saw a lot of people who had gotten started with NFTs in the early part of 2021. They left, they didn't have the stomach for it. And that's good. You, you have to be honest with yourself if you don't have the stomach for volatility and for risk. And I, And it's that, it's to say that while all of that is true, I've never doubted myself as an artist. Um, and I've never doubted myself, if I may go so far as to say, like as a visionary, like I know I have a special gift. I know I have a special voice and I've spent a lot of my life on like developing skills around that gift and that voice. Um, because I really think being uh, a potent artist has to be a combination of the two. It can't just be voice. You have to have skills too. But if you only have skills and no voice, then you're an artisan and you're not an artist. And that's a debate that comes up a lot in this space because there's a lot we see um, getting valued very highly as fine art and other artists see it and go, but that's art artisan work. That's technical work. There's not a lot of voice there. And then this is a debate where, I mean, this is what I mean by hills people will die on. And I'm, like I said, I, I really see both. I, I would never say that work that is artisan work isn't also highly valuable. It is, but there is a difference. Uh, there is a difference between design and art. And um, it's not my place to assign a hierarchy to those two things, uh, but they are different. And it is frustrating for people, I think, when they see them get, see these two very different things getting lumped in together. So for me, part of all that is to say that because I, I know I have a very potent voice and a very strong point of view, I long ago made peace with the fact that my work is not for everyone. And, and I honestly appreciate when people are respectfully like, nope, it's not for me. You know, uh, that's fine. You know, that's absolutely fine. I would, I don't want to create work that's for everyone. Work that is for everyone tends to be like, you know, pop music. Right. It can be like drivel a little bit. Yeah. Where you're like, right. It's for everyone in that way where no one really likes it. Yeah. No one really hates Where's it either. It right. Yeah. Where it's like something they can play in the background at the grocery store without offending anybody. You know, <laughs> not all music is suited for that. Uh, and not all art is suited for that either. You know, not all art can be put on a trapper keeper and given to an eight-year-old. Um, some art has <laughs> to be put in, in places where 
it's like you must be 18 plus to enter, you know, and I'm not <laughs> saying that's my art necessarily. I'm just saying I'm very, I take great pride and great delight in making art that is charged and making art that is, has a point of view. And, uh, and my whole life I've had to contend with the unintended ways people sometimes interpret my art, getting in, getting me into trouble. I got the only times I ever got in trouble in school really were because of art I had made, um, where I was like, I was just drawing a thing. And they're like, yeah, you can't draw naked ladies all over your, <laughs> what are you doing? You're like a seven-year-old girl. Why are there titties all over everything? You know, whatever it is, I can't you know, I'm like, well, cause they're cool. Um, you know, but it's like, it's that it's, so it's to say that I never doubt myself as an artist. I never doubt my vision. I've really gotten, uh, I, I really have, uh, am lucky in that way that I don't doubt my creative vision ever, but being part of an art market is a completely different thing entirely. And, um, my work while yes, I think absolutely, especially at this point, people recognize my work, you know, you know, it's a Sarah Zucker typically, but I don't only work in one style. And I think I've, I've done my best to like name my different styles for people. So just so they know how to talk about my work, um, because they really, most of what I make does kind of fall under, uh, about four different categories. I have my video paintings, which are like these, yep. these figurative illustrative pieces I do. I have video feelings, which are typically abstract and textural and rhythmic. Um, I have, oh my God, what else do I have? I have, oh, I have uh, video thoughts, which are text art. I do a lot of pieces that mm. are pull from my writing background that are just, they're, they're meant to be a synthesis of text and visual that creates this sort of self-contained thought. And then everything else I put under a category I call video alchemy, um, because I often work with live footage that I shoot. I often, you know, the photographer in me still is always shooting video, always shooting footage, always taking photos. Um, so I do a lot where I, you know, I work with my own original assets and, and manipulate them in the analog system. So I, I call anything like that uh, would fall under the category of video alchemy. But that's all to say that because it's not all the same, uh, you know, there are other artists we can look to in this space who've been wildly successful. Their work is awesome. I love it. But, and you also know, like it's every piece is going to be kind of a variation on the same vibe. Right. Yeah. And I early on in all of this thought about, I, I even early on, I mean, that's, it's true in traditional art as well, that you're typically rewarded for consistency. You're rewarded for being consistent. And early on, I just knew I was like, I'm just too, I have too much to say that I can't contain myself to just one style. And I've still been very thoughtful again about, about like creating in a certain number of styles, but I actually challenge myself so that every piece so that I never like repeat a style, like two in a row on the same platform, for example, as best I can. I don't do that unless it's like a triptych or a series of some sort. And because of that, every drop I have, every release, I am like <laughs> shitting my pants. Yeah, I was waiting for <laughs> like, shitting your pants to come out I right think there. We say shitting my pants on every episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was in my head already. Yeah. So, you know, 
in, in that sense of to speak to what you're saying, that it's like, I am not so hubristic as to think that any of this is just a given. None of this is ever easy, that every single thing I do, everything I put on the blockchain, I have given great thought to it. And I have given great thought to how I release it and when I release it and what I price it at. Uh, because to be engaging with an art market is a very different skill and task than being an artist. And it's very, very important to me uh, that I instill a sense of trust among my collectors, that I instill a sense for them that, of course, I want them to collect because they love the art. But I know because I'm a collector, you don't buy things that you think are going to lose value. You don't buy from artists if you see them behaving in ways that are erratic and make you go, this person doesn't know what they're doing. They're, they're going to fuck up their market. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, you run the other direction. You're like, I love you. I love your art, but I can't throw my money. I, 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 don't, have, I don't have the option to just throw my money into a hole and lose it. Uh, so it has to be for me as a collector. I know when I, when I collect, it has to meet both criteria. I have to love the art because I, t- I'm not buying to flip. I have no intention when I buy things to sell them immediately, but I simply, for the sake of my well uh, <laughs> I cannot buy it. If I think this is going to be worth zero, uh, I have to have faith that the artist understands what they're doing and understands that engaging with a market is its own thing and you need to educate yourself about it and make moves that are um that show you understand how to dialogue with people who for a long time I thought were like the complete opposite of me I thought financial people were aliens and they thought I was an alien and that's what's been so interesting about this whole experience is realizing that like passion is a great unifier like and that like these people are not, no, no human being is so different from any other human being. We all have a lot more in common than we realize. And we tell ourselves these stories of like us versus them. And, and that's what I've come to realize is, yes, I'm still an artist first and a crypto person second. But the more I've learned about all of this and gotten involved in all of this and learned to speak the language of it, um, I actually take great joy in, in this this sort of skill I've acquired of understanding how to speak to the market and, and, and tango with it. So yeah, hopefully that answers your, your question. Yeah. I'm yes. No, that was great. I I was glad that you brought up the um, collectors in some way, because, you know, anytime you're talking about, you know, an art market, whatever the uh, nature you're talking, there is a a collector base and, you know, Mm -hmm. there's always talk on, you know, what the, traditional art collectors look like where it's pretty anonymous you really don't know what's going on to where you know you're in such an you know a a time of you know you have the ability to connect and just reach out you know even if you're bidding or looking to buy something like um what was your expectation and i guess how has it evolved on like what that collector relationship has been and what it's turned into for you Mm. um and like I, i think you kind of said it too with like your different styles like you're only like even if it's slightly opening the door for new consumers, you know, if there's mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that, you know, are just like, that's not for me. Maybe, you know, but I love else. the alchemy. Exactly. Ah, exactly. Yeah. Has your relationship with collectors, like your mindset on it evolved since you started? Yeah. Well, my mindset has evolved because the collectors have evolved and, and what you're saying about the multiple styles absolutely is true. I, I don't think it was, it was not initially my intention 
in working in different styles. It was not initially my intention to appeal to a wider net of collectors, but that has ended up becoming true. Um, originally it was just because these are all the styles I work in and I can't really make myself only work in one style. I'll get fussy and I'll like not want to do it anymore. And long-term, I think the beauty of that for me is while my individual pieces might not sell for those same astronomical numbers as artists who maybe work in, in a slightly more homogenous, uh, style, I have developed a very, uh, you know, substantial and respectable sales record for myself. And I'm very happy with, I think the prices of my work currently are very um, well matched to the work. And, and which makes me then rest easy at night that I don't feel like there's a speculative bubble happening for my work. And yeah, and that is what has proven to be the case long-term. Uh, again, my like my trivia brain, like I remember a lot about people and I know which of my collectors which likes, uh, like which styles. And I know like my video paintings are some people's favorite thing in the world. And other collectors of mine really like my video feelings and would never even think of collecting a video painting because they're so, they come from such a different space uh, and they, they exist in such a different, almost like lineage of style of art that it has allowed me, it's almost like I'm four artists in one, you know, that I have these microcosms of collectors within my greater collector base. Yeah, the way my relationship with collectors has evolved is to say that I never have, I never have expectations of my collectors. I think it's what is one of the most um, transformative, powerful, uh, revolutionary things we're doing in Web3 is this idea of trustlessness, this idea of like, well, I don't have to trust you. Like, because any scenario on the internet where you are relying on trust is a scenario where you might get scammed or cheated. And the beauty of Web3, not that people don't still have issues and they engage with things that aren't trustless and are going to drain their wallets, um, but it's to say like, for example, on Superware, I love, I've long, ever since I started with it, that is what blew my mind the most of to make this sale, some anonymous person can come in and give me money and my artwork is immediately transferred to their wallet and neither that person nor I have to engage with one another in any way, shape or form. And, you know, I'm saying all that and the, the gallerists of the world probably just like let out a little shriek because... <laughs> It like goes, it's, it's, it makes it, it, what it, what it sounds like to them when I say something like that, what it sounds like to them is that I'm saying they are invalid. And that's actually not what I'm saying. I actually greatly value mediators. Um, and I think there's an important distinction between mediators and gatekeepers. You know, we use the term gatekeepers a lot in our community in a way that is pejorative where we say, you know, we don't like these gatekeepers. I think if a gallerist is doing their job properly, they're a mediator and not a gatekeeper. And I would be the first to say as an artist, it is a lot of work being your own team. You need people who can help mediate for you. But this aspect of trustlessness, this aspect of like that someone can come in and buy the work and there doesn't have to be all of this hoopla around it and all of this talking and paperwork and crazy shit that goes on that slows things down, that is friction, that's taking up manpower, 
you know, I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing for artists and it's a good thing for collectors. And as we've seen, it's why the fine art world is like going like they have like little birdies spinning around their head because they they're and and why they keep trying to paint NFT the entire notion of NFTs as a scam is because we have really improved upon a system that used to be very frictive and we've made it frictionless and it has led to an explosion of art collecting yep. that that it used to be a very very like small elite group of people who could engage with art collecting in any sort of like real tangible way. And now we have people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people around the world collecting like these art. Guys. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of hoodlums cool. that just had some spare cash to throw at their buddy and then happened to be, you know. Yeah, and that's you're, cool, yeah. right. And once you're in, you start getting, you start seeing more and you start, and, and a lot of us are people who write in these institutions, we would be scared to even walk in the door because you'd right. go, some, some snooty gallerist is going to come up to me and make me feel bad that I'm not wearing the right clothes or yes. I didn't go to the right school or I don't, I'm not saying the right thing about this art. So they're going to tell me I'm not allowed to buy it because I'm too stupid, yep. you know, whatever it is. And we've sort of done away with that aspect of it, the like elitism aspect of it. And uh, obviously that's very triggering for people who have a vested interest in maintaining elitism. But yes, it's all to say for me, like personally with my collectors, it, it really ranges. I have, a, I have like great relationships with some of my collectors. We talk frequently, we talk about art, we talk about philosophy. I've, I've had collectors reach out to me to ask for my advice on like the best way to display my work. And we talk about that. We talk about displays because like I said, if I just wanted to be making analog video art, I'd say, go get a vintage TV and put my artwork on it. Right. And, so I, cool. and it tubes. is cool. It looks yeah. real cool. And, I, and I'm not saying that's not the right way to do it. Um, but it's why as this debate around displays comes up, I go, well, my work is digital work. It does live online. It's, it's not from 1994. So I don't require you to display it on a device from 1994. The point of it is that it exists now. And so I really like projection for my work um, for that reason to kind of like take, take the power away from the display and let the work exist as light. I love that. Um, that's and cool. That's, yeah. And it's something that this year is like a really, it's a really big like thing I'm working on and chewing on in my studio actually is like, I'm at a point in my practice and my career that I like, I want to have better solutions for my collectors. So they don't have these questions because my work is almost never 16, nine. It's almost never formatted to be on a TV. And we all know those black bars look bad. And so it's, you know, it's something where it's like, I almost often, especially with my abstract work, I would rather people, uh, I would rather people just zoom in and, and view it like a uh, cropped so that they're filling that 16.9 screen rather than view it with the black bars. And that's one of those things that like in the art world, it's like, <laughs> like they're like, absolutely not. The worst thing you could do is ever display artwork differently than the full artwork that the artist intended. And I'm a slippery Cheshire cat of a creator. Like certain of my pieces I think can exist uh, and be just as potent if you do crop them to fill the whole screen. You know, and I'd rather you be having that experience and having the experience of ugly letterboxing. So it, it's just all to say that I love, I just like talking to people. I like these, I love talking about art. I love conversations like this. 
And so I've been very fortunate that uh, certainly people who've gotten very vested in my art practice, they're tickled by me. And, and I think they, I, I could say that they feel excited to have that kind of access to me and to my mind and like that we can talk about this stuff. Similarly, I have plenty of people who've collected my work that I've never, they've never spoken a word to me and they've collected yeah. multiple pieces. And in some cases, I think it's because it's like just an investment for them. Um, and in other cases, I really don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they have intense social anxiety. I can relate to that. Like, I, and that's what I mean by like the beauty of trustlessness uh, is sort of like it, it's opened it up, you know, and I, I've gotten to a point in my career where I'm, I'm really like, yeah, I'm now at a point where I, I'm actually like considering selling my work in different ways and uh, rewarding the collectors who kind of got in early and bringing it in, and then being very thoughtful about new collectors. Cause that's, what's so interesting about a collector community as I'm sure, like I said, I'm not super into the collectible side of things, but I understand, <laughs> I understand what the kids are talking about. You know, <laughs> like I understand how these mechanisms work. It's like this thing, when you all buy into a collection, you're like strange bedfellows in a certain way. It's everyone pressuring everyone else don't sell and, oh, make sure hold maintain the floor, the floor price, yeah. right? Hold oh. the floor, all these things. And as someone who's, again, really more in the fine art space, we have the same mechanisms. We, we, you know, we, we, it functions a little differently and our work isn't meant to be as liquid as like collectibles projects. But I also pride myself on being an artist. People can buy and know that one day they can resell my work. I have a proven secondary market. Um, so I would be the last person to say, never resell my work. And it's no, please, if you want to resell my work, just for your own sake, try to get a good price for it. You know, that's it upsets me when I see people price too low only because I, I feel like they're going to they're getting taken advantage of. I, as an artist, would never say to a collector, how dare you sell my work so low? That's very um, it's just not my business. If I've it's sold like, it make a little you, more money for yourself. Like I know what I'm worth. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's that of like, you're right. I go and, and I honestly, I would say I actually do very much. Um, with many of my collectors very much have that open door. And I have counseled many of my collectors when they reach out to me and say, I have to resell your work. I have, you know, financial needs have come up, whatever it is. I'm always like, that's, that's completely 100% fine. I will not make it, it is yours. You bought it for me. You have every right to resell it. I, and, and frankly, I'm much happier when a collector wants to kind of like work with me on establishing a secondary price and establishing um, like a, a, a plan, like a game plan for how they're going to resell it. I'd far prefer that than, than these sort of market dislocations that can happen where you see someone sold a piece they bought for eight ETH for three ETH. And you're like, well, it doesn't look good for me, but but more so than that, what did what what are you doing there, bud? Like, yeah. well, well, <laughs> Something well, went why? wrong here. It's yeah. also that of like, I I understand crypto is scary, but you if you're paying attention, you should know my market doesn't go down; it goes up. You you could have sold it for more than you bought it for. I don't under does not compute, um, and that has happened to me a few times. Like I said, I've been around in this space, and uh, and like I said, it's like it's that of, I, I'd really rather discuss, I, it, it, I'm interested by the art market. I'm interested by its movements. And, um, and so when people need to sell, it's, it's that where I, I very much go, there's a way to do this where we're all happy. There's a way to do this where at the end, we can all like virtually lift our champagne glass to each <laughs> other 
as opposed to it being like a big question mark for, for me and for your bank account. <laughs> um, you have so awesome yeah. collectors out there that I've seen yeah. on Super Rare too, like people that we know in the space. So like, it's wild, like looking back at the ETH prices though, in like 2019, when someone <laughs> buys something for like half an ETH and it's like yeah. 50 bucks. And I'm like, oh, I could have been there, you know? I know. I mean, it's that. I, I'll toot my own horn and say I have a pretty epic collection myself for that exact reason. Those early days, anytime I sold something, I bought something from somebody else. And just out of the sheer fact that I love art, it is for years I have, I have been like, saying, I can't wait until I am able to collect art. Like, cause for so long for me, I was only ever able to engage with the art market as an artist, but, but by engaging with it as an artist, I was like, man, if I had any money to spend, artists have a superpower. Like we know what is, what is the art to collect, right? Like we are, uh, have this aesthetic sensibility that makes us we don't need to be told by a curator. We don't need to be told by a writer or a critic or a museum. This art is important. Like I feel it. it I feel my body tingle when I see art that I'm like, Ooh, this is really something like and this it's great is, advice for collectors though. Like look at what artists are collecting. Oh, like that's I, how we buy stuff. Oh yeah. It's know? my number one advice for collectors. There are a number, I mean, you know, Coldy, Matt Cain, me. I mean, there are a bunch of us who have been collecting since our early days. And even still, like I collect on a lot on Tezos these days. Um, Shout it's, out. It's, oh my God. It's like, it's like being a kid in a candy store, you know, it's like, it's what super rare was in those early days. And that's why I have such an epic super rare collection is in the early days, I could buy something for a hundred dollars, you exactly. know, a one of one that's awesome for a hundred dollars. And like with Tezos now, it's kind of that same feeling again of like the risks aren't as high. Like I am an, I'm an artist and I'm a little traumatized by being like income insecure for most of my adult life. So even though, you know, things have been going well for me, I still am like, okay, I can't, I can't spend the way the whales spend on art, right. but I even still really, to. right. Yeah. I wish I could, I can't spend that kind of money on art. I, I literally can't, it would be inadvisable from every perspective, you know, and, and I, and that's important for other people to know too, of like, don't spend $50,000 yeah. on a JPEG. If you don't have $50,000 to throw around, that's like, when you that's return just, and sell it for three ETH. Cause you didn't. And, and that means you might have a gambling problem. Yeah. Like, you know, and I, th I, there's a lot that I see in this space where I'm like, Oh man, this, I think this person just has a gambling problem. Um, shout you know. out Naples Roost. Yeah. Uh, shout, oh. shout out me too. I, I had yeah. this thought the other night when I was scrolling open see it. Like it was like <laughs> close to midnight, and I've been falling asleep earlier nowadays, but it was like one eye open in bed, like, uh -huh. why am I looking at these PFPs? Because I, I can't, I don't want to miss the big one. Exactly. I don't want to miss the big opportunity. Yeah. I did I not know. miss anything over right. that eight and hours we, of sleep. Right. So. And I te I tease. We all do that. We all do that, but like to some extent, but, but yeah, I don't, I, it's sad. I, I like collecting on Tezos because it's like, Oh, this is an amount of money I've set aside that I can, that I, I can play with without like putting myself out of house and home. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, but that's exactly, that's like my number one advice to anyone who wants to collect, at least collect, collect on the art side of things. Look at what artists are collecting. We don't have as much money so we don't spend on things unless they're awesome, <laughs> you know? It's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like this was affordable and very good. 
So mm-hmm. check that Venn diagram. And that, right. Out. That's what I'm saying is I, a lot of this early stuff I collected, it was like, yeah, I'm very, I've been a curator. I, I have that in my toolkit. So I don't have to wait for other people to tell me it's good. I know when it's good, when I, when I see it. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's made, it's treat, it's been good for me in that regard in the collecting sense. I wanted to revisit something you touched on earlier, which was kind of your, an example of your workflow, right? If you were Mm -hmm. going to make a piece, like I kind of wanted to give the listeners an idea of all the different hardware and software that you're pumping on to make these pieces. Like, cause I I can imagine you're everywhere. I am everywhere. Um, Yeah. I I realized my workflow can be a little, um, maybe ADD is the term. Uh, Yeah. It's, you know, I don't want to get into specifics too much only because I, as time has gone on and I've done a lot of knowledge share in my time, but once you're at a certain level and you start seeing people just truly try to imitate exactly what you're doing. Yeah. It's like, that's not good for them either. I don't think it's not good for anyone. I I, I should point out, I don't care if people imitate me just to learn and just to make work. It's, I mean, when someone imitates you and then mints it and tries to sell it and you're like, you kind of hedging in on my thing here, um, yeah. you know, and there, are, and I should also say, I'm not alone. Like I come from a lineage of analog video artists. There are a lot of people doing incredible analog video art uh, these days, you know, on the blockchain, uh, many of whom I've known from, from the pre blockchain era. So I'm not trying to throw, <laughs> I don't mean to throw shade at anyone. I'm not saying people are copying me. They're not, but I have seen people copy me and, and outright say they were copying me. And I sort of thought, right, that's fine. But not if you meant it, um, yeah. not if you meant it. And uh, is my feeling on that. I, that's one of those hills that people would die on and just like scream at me that I'm wrong. But um, that's just my, that's how I feel about it. So it's all to say that, yeah, I, I digitally, I use a lot of the same tools everyone does. You know, I'm a, I'm a creative suite queen. You know, I use my, my after effects and my Photoshop and uh, a lot of my work, again, it begins as digital footage that I shoot either with like an SLR or with my, with my phone. Even I shoot things sometimes. Okay. Um, I was imagining you outside with like a, with a big VHS camcorder. Nope. Yeah. I have, I have a VHS camcorder and I have tried that. Um, but yeah, for, the certain service of my vision, I have found I, I need all my original assets to be digital, right? Um, because it just affords me so much more ability to manipulate and ability to like catalog and have things at the ready. Because sometimes I'll film footage, like it's part of my photography background. Like I was a street photographer primarily which means just always had my camera with me, always taking pictures of things I saw. It was, you know, most of my work was never posed. It was always like the decisive moment. And still with video, uh, even if I don't do a ton of like street videography exactly, there's a lot that like, I'll just have an idea and I'll, um, I'll be like, I have to film this and I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll set it up in my studio and I'll film it. And then I won't make a piece from it for like two years. I'll have this footage just like sitting on my hard drive for years before I feel like that connection in my brain of like, here's what that needs to become. Um, you tag have, and catalog that stuff so you can find it. easily. Yep, yeah. And that's, I would say that's one of the biggest parts of being a digital artist. And I, I'm sure other digital artists would agree with me is like, you come up with your own system of, of, or of cataloging for things like for assets, right? 
uh, whatever style you're doing, whether it's 3D or video like I do, you know, exactly. You'd never find anything again if you don't come up with a way of naming things for yourself and a way of like storing them. Um, so yeah, there's there's been quite a number of pieces I've made where it's like, oh, I shot this footage years ago, but I never did anything with it because I didn't I didn't have the idea wasn't fully there yet. It was an impulse at that time. And then years later, maybe like I have a piece I made, uh, I've, a number of pieces I've made recently where, yeah, it's like footage that was that was from a while back. But like I, I got a new uh, new device in my studio recently and I had this moment where I was like, this is what this footage has been waiting for. This thing that this device could do. I didn't have this capability before. Oh my God. And now that piece of footage that I thought was so cool, but I never knew what to do with it. Like now I have the thing like so much about my art is like, I'm always weaving like feedback loops into it. And I'm always sort of like revisiting things anyway, intentionally, and like bringing like little Easter eggs and little aspects of narrative into pieces that are referencing older pieces. And so it kind of works that like, I always say I take, I don't know if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut, but I take like the Trafalmadorian view of time. This is like a, a concept from the writing of Kurt Vonnegut. Hit me. Yeah. Okay. So the Trafalmadorian view of time is this idea. The Trafalmadorians are these like aliens that see in the fourth dimension. So they visit earth and they go, you know, the problem with humans is you, you only see like linear, you see time, like a strand of pearls. You see one moment is follows the last, you know, each moment follows the next on a strand of pearls. We experience time as this moment and now this moment and now this moment. The Trafalmadorian view of time is like looking at a mountain range where each moment in time is like a peak in the mountain range, but you can also see all of them all at once. And bit of a heady concept, but bit trippy, but it's like a revelation I had recently because I've been re Vonnegut was like my first author I got really obsessed with when I was around 10. And I, I revisit his work every now and then because every era of your life, it hits you differently. Mm. And I've been revisiting his work and, and that's, it, it hit me of like this thing, this, this writing of his that I've been truly, his was like formational for me when I was young. I realized how much I absorbed that into my sense of how I express myself. And it's why I work with vintage tech. It's the thing I was saying about the point is not, oh, it looks like it's from back then. The point is that we can still see back then, even though we're now the same way we can see the future too. Like, right. Maybe, maybe psychedelics would help with that, but like, you know, and We've maybe been not, there. right. Maybe not everyone sees it that way, but it's this, this concept of like, we exist at all the points in time at once. And, and that allows for a new perspective on things to emerge. And it's that, I think it's this like, thing I'm always chasing in my work of like, yeah, three years ago, two years from now, now, like they all interweave. They're all this story, this time, these time loops that are like going back and forth between these moments in our life. And in my case, in my work. And so, so yeah. So just to say, yeah, I have this vast catalog of things I've created over the years that it's never static. It's, it's rarely, is it like, okay, this is done. Like, goodbye. Like things often have a way of like, of like floating back in little light motifs, little concepts. Um, 
I've gotten very philosophical about this and I didn't mean to. No, mean oh, to, we've like, had conversations your... with Dave Krugman and. <laughs> oh, Jeep. good. Oh, we've Dave, had some Dave's heady, on my wavelength. Yeah, we've had some heavy sure. combos. <laughs> yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, right so it's all you. to say, right. All this stuff exists for me digitally. It's why I, I consider myself a digital analog artist. Um, I'm not an, I'm not a purist about anything. I really don't like puritanical thinking in general. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are those who, who are like analog purists and everything must be pure, you know, same as like people who will only listen to vinyl records. You know what I mean? <laughs> I might like a vinyl record, but I might also throw a Spotify on, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm not so I'm not just like an, an old timey person. Like that's not my jam. That's not what this is about for me, but yeah, I, I have all these digital things and very often I'll create something very intentionally digitally. Cause I'll have the idea and I'll, I'll like prepare my files digitally. And then I sit at this, this rig I've created that I also call my video altar. Um, and I actually reti retired. I had for the longest time, what I was using was a TV that I had bedazzled. Uh, I had bedazzled <laughs> it with like gems and stuff to literally make it look like, Oh, like, like some sort of like religious altar. Um, <laughs> and I, I retired it only cause the screen got kind of bleak. And my old studio was really filled with sun and the screen got a little bleached. Uh. And I started to notice this like aberration when I, cause I, a lot of the work I do, I record it off of these vintage screens. Um, so, I, so it has been, it has been demoted. Uh, it'll, I'll save it for the Sarah Zucker museum. Love it. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, I don't I don't use that one anymore. But it's still my video altar, and like I said, I have all these different devices. It really ranges from like old broadcast devices to um, some of the gear, some of the like glitch gear I use. There's an uh, uh, an artist and a gear builder who goes by Tachyons Plus. He recently got into NFTs. Highly suggest checking his work out. Um, and I also use ones by uh, a creator who goes by BPMC, and and just a number of other things. Like, again, I, when I was a photographer, I specifically was really into film photography and using vintage cameras. And I completely see how my video work now has like evolved out of that, that I really, I'm like a tinkerer and I really love like, uh, you know, seeing how things connect to each other. And I really, yeah, I love gadgets. Exactly. And I really like with video like anyone who's ever worked with analog video knows that it's like some things when put together do things you would never expect. And some things when put together don't work at all. And something, you know, it's like <laughs> the fun of like pairing things that were never meant to go together. The fun of using devices that in their day would have been like multi-thousands of dollars and, own, and owned by television studios. Yeah. And that now you can get it on eBay for like a, a couple hundred bucks. Like that's cool. Like, and that's again, you know, when we laughed about my, my moniker of the Sarah show, while it wasn't like originally my intention be, when I, because I came up with the screen name when I was eight and had no, no show really to speak of. <laughs> um, these days, what I've realized why it's such a nice container for the work I do is I really do. I love TV. I love movies. I love broadcast. I've always been like obsessed with that. And I've really begun to think of these creations I make as these little like glimmers of like interdimensional broadcast, you know, maybe like a Rick and Morty, like right. <laughs> the, the weird dimension of television, you know, like that's what I'm doing. And it's this ongoing show. And, and I really do see my work as kind of best being experienced as a whole for that reason. Like you can zoom in on each of these pieces, but just like the Trafalmadorians, 
you can also view it like as the full mountain range, the whole body of work, and it tells a, a different story. Fascinating. Yeah, it's a perfect parallel. It really, it really is. It was a great way to explain your <laughs> an informal process that it seems like you have, yes. where, where experimentation and and trial and error, I'm assuming, is takes part of it, and and just how the process is never ending, and how you can yeah. always go back and and pick and choose and. You know. cycle in new equipment, cycle out old equipment. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's that it, it is so experimental. And like, but part of it being experimental is as I've been doing it now for a while, I always laugh about how like certain techniques I've developed that are uniquely mine, where it's like, it is like a form of magic. I'm like, if anyone saw me in my studio, like sometimes I'm doing things where I'm like, I'm leaning over and I, cause I'm grabbing this knob over here while I'm also touching this knob right here. And then my foot is like trying <laughs> to get this other knob. And because I know I have recipes, I write recipes for myself of like what, how to chain things together and which knobs to turn. And just like an Italian grandmother, I like <laughs> memorize those recipes, right? Like they're up here, they're in my head. Like I do have them written down, but if you use them enough, you like remember them, yep. you get, you develop this fluency with them. And yeah, I sometimes like, I recently got a security camera for my studio and I was oh, like, God. this is going to be, a, I like, can't bring myself to look at it. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I can bear to witness my digital art body. Twister. Like, yeah, these like twister pretzels I get into. And I'm like getting a neck problem. And I realize cause it's, I'm always turning my head sideways. Cause a lot of my work, I create sideways and I realized it the other day. I was like, I should just get a TV that I set up sideways. Why didn't I, <laughs> sideways. Why didn't I think of that six years ago? Oh, because yeah. I didn't have any money six years ago. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't buy a second TV back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it is funny that like, and I think it's what a lot of people have responded to in my work is there is that physicality to it. Like that, that analog video, like you're, what you're seeing is the actual texture of actual like electrons on tape, you know, and like you're seeing, and in a lot of the work I do, like I said, I'm recording the screens. You're feeling when you're looking at it, it's double mediated. You're seeing it not only through your computer screen, you're seeing my screen. That's part of the image, my vintage TV screen of the kind you don't see very often these days. And it feels it, thick, you know, it it's feels like, thick, right. And yeah, it gives people a feel heavy. it's like, cause you can feel it like it, you can touch it but it also exists in this way that can never be physical because it is in ultimately incorporeal. And so, yeah, I really, as I keep developing my work and moving forward with my work, that's, I, I really realized that's an aspect of it. I love a lot and that I want to play with more and more because I think I just have a natural fluency with these questions of physicality and, and mediation and how they affect our experience of digital art. Yeah, Sarah, this has been so like mind altering for us. <laughs> Hell Feeling a little trippy. We, we can tell how you, you were on Jeopardy, like kicking uh, ass. Thanks. I also, yeah, it's also safe to assume you would have been burned at the stake if this were like the 1600s. So. Oh my God, dude, you know, I have that thought like every day and it's why I'm always saying to people, cause, cause God, there are just so many people out there who just, all they want to do is criticize everything everything, right? It's like the dominant mode, I think, of our time because we feel yeah. so disempowered about climate change. We feel so disempowered about government, about the virus, about politics, about everything. So everyone's just bitching at each other all the time and sniping at each other all the time. And I, 
I sometimes get a little, you know, I sometimes feel like I am the Lorax. I speak for the internet, you know, like I, a hundred years ago, I would have been married off to a man. My parents chose, I would have been forced to have a bunch of kids and nobody would have ever fucking asked me what I thought about anything. Or if I was maybe like smart and had things to say, wouldn't have been given the option. They would have gone, Nope, you were born a woman. We don't give a shit. And a hundred years before that, exactly like you said, I fully would have been burned at the stake. Like I am <laughs> a candidate numero uno, probably for that. Like they'd been like, what the hell is this witch cooking up in her cottage? You know, like yeah. strong Madame Mim vibes with me. Definitely. You know? And like, yeah. And I just think about that, how it's like, thanks to the internet, everything good I have in my life is thanks to the internet, my career, my spouse, I met on the internet, like every my most of my friends I met on the internet like the internet is fundamentally the greatest technology we've ever created as humanity and this is what my collection Promethea is about it's since fire yeah Yeah. it's not specifically about web3 but it is about this era of the internet and it's about this this idea that like the internet is so potent it is divinity incarnate on earth we took this technology that is fundamentally altering. It used to be to be human beings. We were these little, you know, flesh, flesh pellets throughout the world, independent of each other, forming little tribes, creating borders and like stabbing each other, you know? And now with the internet, we are having to reckon with the fact that we are actually all one organism. We are actually all nodes of a network that there is no us versus them. There is nature versus us. Or if you want to take the view that we are part of nature, there is just earth versus the cosmos, which will destroy it, you know? And it's like, we must protect, we must protect it. And it's, it's that thing of because the internet is so powerful, it's a strong fire. We are silly little beings who keep fucking burning ourselves with it. And continuing tribalism constantly. Yes, yes. It's like, because it's so powerful, it's so of the gods that we just in our like mortal silliness can't really quite get a grasp on like how to use it right. And the gods are laughing at us, you know? It's like, oh, you stole it for yourselves and now you don't know what to do with it, do you? You fools. That's why the market's down. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's that. It's like this collection that's you know this collection Promethea is really me playing playing with that and playing with as I often like to do I'm not I'm not a utopian but I like to present still still even as shit feels weird lately especially with like the pandemic and everything I like to present like joy I like to present yeah I'm not saying the internet is perfect not by any means I know it's not perfect but at its core, it is a revolutionary technology that has made life better for people all around this planet. So we should dedicate ourselves to continue workshopping it instead of just going, oh God, yeah, it's like so stupid. Surfer farms are terrible. <laughs> Shut it all down. It's like, yeah, I don't think you, any of these critics saying things like that really want to go back to feudalism. That yeah. sucked way worse. So like, <laughs> let's try and make the internet better instead, you know? I was at art. I can't rant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's why we have podcasts. So we, I think pretty much it's just like passionate brain dumps is all we, uh, we're here to provide. So great. Uh, (laughs) Well, the collectors can look out for your collection coming on Wednesday. Was it, um, January 19th? 
January 19th, 6.30 p.m. Eastern yeah. time on oh, yeah. the Gateway. This will come out. You're listening to this probably on the 17th. So that will be Monday. So perfect. Plenty of time. Yeah, this has been awesome, Sarah. Thanks for taking some time with us. And yeah, seriously, thanks, any, any other time that, uh, you know, you want to chop it up, open invite. This is um, this has been great. Sounds good. I, I appreciate it. It was it was pop, a delight to chat with you. Uh, pop screen survived too. I don't oh think yeah, it's called, but <laughs> it made it slowly. <laughs> it's I can see it's slowly dipping. Slowly but <laughs> laying down, but <laughs> I must rest now. Yeah, really appreciate the time. We know it's very valuable, yeah. and we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. Damn, that's nifty. That's a nifty, that's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty, that's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. A fizz, he leaked a plan. Exula worked on Iron Man. How cool is that? Mad Dog Jones, the dude so fine, he hand draws every single line. I sure as hell didn't know that. Fuck Render built the gallery to raise new artist popularity. What a guy. Yeah, man. Too much lag like a nomad, all his belongings in a single bag. All these things, can't you see? I learned all that's NFT. That's NFT. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT Damn, that's a nifty NFT 